As we walk through Acts, we see that Luke, the author, the human author at times, gives us sort of summaries of how things are going, how the ministry of the church is, is, is going. We saw one of these summaries back in Acts chapter 6. And you may remember that in the beginning of Acts chapter 6, um, we have the first deacons that are called, maybe some call them proto-deacons, the servants of the church. And the, the apostles were there freed up to focus on the ministry of the word in prayer. But we saw, uh, let me read it to you actually. Uh, it says there in Acts chapter 6 in verse 7, that the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. But what we see just after that statement is Stephen is seized by the authorities and he's brought before the council and he gives that incredible speech, that incredible sermon that, that eventually would lead to his being stoned to death, being the first martyr. And it seems that that act is sort of a catalyst. It's the spark that lights the flames of persecution. They intensify for the church. And as we've seen, that persecution was largely spearheaded by one man, by Saul of Tarsus. Praise be to God, that man is now in Christ. Amen? As we've seen over the last two weeks, as of course we know Saul is converted. He becomes what we know now today as the Apostle Paul. And we come now to another one of those review sections. I'm going to focus today just on one verse. We've been taking large chunks at a time. I want to zoom in a bit today on this summary statement uh, where Luke is sort of closing off that last section on persecution and the troubles the church had and moving into a new section. So we're going to read today Acts chapter 9 in verse 31. Acts chapter 9 in verse 31. This is God's word for us today, so take heed how you hear it. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray, church. Our Father, we do thank you for your most holy word. We thank you that we have a preserved Bible for us, uh, sitting before us in our lap. I thank you for a church, Lord, where we to hear the sound of Bible pages turning, um, where the saints are desirous to be in the word. The saints are desirous to hear a sermon that is from the word. Um, we thank you for the men and women that gave their lives so that we could have Bibles today, for those that sacrificed much uh, for the cause of Bible translation, that we can hold an English Bible today. Um, we praise you, God, for that. May we never forget the wonderful treasure that it is to read and to hear and to own a copy of God's Word. And so we pray now as we open that Word, we ask for your guidance, we ask for your direction, we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit, um, that you would come, Lord, that you would come in this place, dwell among us, be in our midst, that you would apply these words to our hearts, that you would give us faith to believe, faith to walk according to your word, wherever your word speaks to us. Give us the grace that we need to obey and follow and trust and believe. Um, Lord, I pray for any lost souls here today, God, that you might be pleased to water that seed in the heart and to bring fruit, to bear fruit in the gospel. Um, I pray for the, for the Christians here, Lord, that you would mature and sanctify and challenge and convict 
and spurn on to love and good works. Have your way. We trust that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Christmas Day, 1914, is a, is a Christmas that's sort of uh, remembered in history. You may have heard of something called the, the Christmas Truce of 1914. Well, in 1914, something was happening globally. It was World War I. And the battles were raging there and the trench warfare out on the Western Front. Um, but Christmas Day that year, there was, there was truces all across the battlefield. Uh, many soldiers wrote home and their letters have been preserved, telling the tale of the truce that they had on Christmas Day. One, one writes that they heard a, Jum, a German soldier from the trench shouting out, You no shoot, we no shoot. British soldiers and German soldiers exchanged that day their rifles for cigars and glasses of wine. They literally erected Christmas trees there in the trenches and sang Christmas carols together. Um, Sort of a sad picture of the reality of senseless war when men that have no real grievance with one another are killing one another. But for that momentary time, they laid down their arms and had a truce on Christmas Day, a beautiful thing to consider. Well, the church in Acts chapter 9 is experiencing also a time of peace, a time of reprieve from the war that they were just in. It's not gone. Let's not go that far. But there is something of a time of peace. The Lord has given his church a chance to take a breath, if you will, We just heard that Saul was going from house to house, synagogue to synagogue, and and kicking in doors and arresting Christians. But praise be to God, Saul is now claimed by Christ. He's been given a new heart, and now he, in our text, he serves the cause of the gospel. We see something here that's a first mention in the book of Acts, and that is the church in Galilee. We have not heard of any Christian activity in Galilee. The region of Galilee. And, and that's helpful for us just to recognize that Luke and every Bible author is being selective with the material that they present to us. Don't expect Luke to be exhaustive. Don't expect because one verse ends and another verse end, begins that, these, that the timeline is from one day to the next. I think we discussed on Sunday night last week that when you go from verse 22 to verse 26, three years passes by. Or from his conversion to Jerusalem, three years passes by. Reading in the text, it seems that these things are just chronological, immediate. But we hear of a work in Galilee. And what that means is that Jesus is faithful to his promise. And he promises, church, you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So we have a Christian witness down south in Jerusalem. We have a Christian witness up north north in Galilee. And we have a Christian witness in the center in Samaria. That is, at this time already, the whole of the Jewish land has been evangelized. Now, everyone is not converted and every soul has not heard the gospel. But there are works beginning in every region, largely in the Holy Land. That's a wonderful thing to see already in the history of the church. And as I said, the Lord has given the church a time of peace. The fear of Saul has subsided. And we know that there are times where the church has a great measure of peace. And there are times where the church has brought through terrible storms. 
or the Lord allows the, the enemies of his bride to mount a formidable offense against the church for his sovereign purpose. He allows these things. And whether it be a time of peace or whether it be a storm, all the while the church is called to be faithful. That's our duty. Amen? To be faithful in the context that God places us in the time he places us there. To trust the providence of God and to keep our hands to the plow. Sometimes in the storm, all the church can do is cling to the Savior, cling to one another, and whatever comes our way. At other times, when there is peace, the church ought to be strengthened and built up and to be prepared and fortified for the trial that is surely to come. I don't know the mind of God, but I think maybe at least one thing that the Lord is preparing His church for here is the Gentile inclusion. It will not be a little event in the life of the Jewish church. But three things that we'll see today take place during this time of peace that lead to the multiplication of the church. We'll see the church today as a built-up church, a reverent church, and a dependent church. A built-up church, a reverent church, and a dependent church. My proposition today is this. God builds the church that walks in the fear of His name, and trust in the power of His Spirit. God builds the church that walks in the fear of His name and trusts in the power of His Spirit. This is not a formula for church growth. This is not to say if we do A and B, God will always do C. But I do believe that the church that walks in the fear of God and trusts in the power of the Spirit will be built up as God is pleased to build His church. Amen? So let's look firstly at a built-up church. This is one of those statements, like many statements, sentences that are in the New Testament, that in Greek are one long sentence, but it doesn't really transfer over well into English. And so most translations have turned this verse into two sentences because it's sort of awkward in the Greek. But I want to read to you just a rough, natural Greek translation from, from Greek into English, not my work. Um, but I thought it was helpful to see just how it's sort of rawly parsed out. It says, Then the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, being strengthened and going in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So while the church has peace, it is being strengthened and it is going in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So we see firstly there the church is being Strengthened. This is a built-up church. Now, this is a, another, a big sort of compound word there. It's one word in the original language. Um, and the verb there is a present passive verb. I usually don't use these sort of things, but I think it's helpful here. The word is, is one word that's in the present tense, meaning it's an ongoing action with no conclusion to, that is in sight. It's a work that is continuing, but it's in the passive voice Meaning the church is not the one doing the building. The church is being built up by an outside agent. Namely, the ascended Lord Jesus is the one strengthening his church, building up his church. And it's an ongoing divine activity that God is doing that the church is not the ultimate cause of. You remember Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, did he mean only when he was on earth in his embodied incarnate ministry? 
course not. His church, we would say, on scales of today, was minuscule during the earthly ministry of Christ. But he is now at the right hand of his Father, as he was there, building his church, thus that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Christ is here building his church. And we see that in the Bible, the Bible authors often love to use language tying the church to something of a building. We see this language all over the place. And this word is actually a construction word. It has the root words of house and roof in the word here that is used, meaning the Lord is building his house, his building, his church. As Paul writes to Timothy, he tells him, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So there Paul likens the church to a household, a family, an environment where there is love and sacrifice, where we as a people are are together in a building, in a household. Households dwell in buildings, Lord willing. We see similar language by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you are all members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul likens the entire church to a temple, a holy building, and also you as an individual Christian. You are a dwelling place of God, a temple of the living God. And so how is the Lord here in the book of Acts building his church? Well, he has sunk the immovable cornerstone. Amen? That cornerstone is fixed. Everything is squared off of the cornerstone because that cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Everything makes it square off of him. Everything is sourced from and connected to Jesus Christ, that cornerstone. You may know that in old times when they would build a massive building, they would find a a huge cornerstone that would be the anchor that everything else could be fixed upon and attached to. But then there is a foundation that Paul says is being laid. And that foundation is the apostles and the prophets. There is one foundation to a building. If you build on a foundation, you, you, you build the foundation and you build up from there. I found it interesting that I learned a while back that in New York City, you can own the air above your building. Because there's nowhere else to go but up. And if you're the penthouse and you want to be the big dog always on top, you can buy the air so that no one can build above you. Because the foundation is there. There's nowhere else to go but up. The city is too Full, But that same illustration bears out with the church. There's one foundation. The church is being built up upon the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. You don't tear down the building and start over. You don't build a second foundation. I used to work a long time ago or a while ago in Newport Beach, California, cleaning people's boats, maintaining people's boats. And you would see sometimes it's cheaper, as some of you may know, It's cheaper with the city to do a remodel than it is to tear your house down and start over. And so you would see this massive house and you'd see one little eight foot two by four wall that they left standing up. As long as you leave that wall up, you're just doing a remodel. You're not actually building a new home. It's kind of funny to see that, but they would still leave that foundation because the foundation has been laid. It is there fixed. 
And so the church is being built up upon the teaching ministry of the apostles and prophets. That foundation is being laid. The church is being built up through the gifts and graces of her ministers and subsequently then through the gifts and graces of the body of Christ. As we have seen these saints early on, zealous for fellowship, zealous to be together. And so we might say it like this, that the ministry of word and sacrament is feeding the faith of the saints. They're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're loving God and loving one another. They're giving themselves sacrificially in service. God is working grace in their hearts. If you have a Bible in the King James tradition, you'll see there that it uses the word edified instead of strengthened. And I think that's helpful for us to understand what the translators were thinking, that this is not about numerical strengthening, but it's about strengthening in maturity. Christian maturity is what is being spoken of here. So the church is being strengthened. God in Christ, the, the ascended Son, is at the right hand of the Father, and He is building His church. He's, the, the cornerstone is there. There's no changing that cornerstone, the rock. We, we, we build upon the rock, which is Christ, the apostles are building the foundation God is giving. Remember, they are his divinely appointed messengers. They, 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 they're preaching authoritative sermons, right? They, they have an authority that men now do not have. There are no apostles in this regard living today like these apostles. You might say someone has an apostolic ministry. If we mean by that a sort of pioneering church planting ministry, but as far as the office of the apostles, we believe that that has ceased with these first generation men that had the ability to perform signs and wonders. Their letters were inspired authoritative scripture. They spoke theodosoth, the God-breathed words, thus saith the Lord type of authority. And so we see that God through them is building his church. And I believe that the Lord is doing a similar work here in our midst at First Baptist Church. Now you might come here and you come in the church and look around and you see 30 people, 40 on a good day, and they say, I don't know, man, is, is God really doing a whole lot here? One brother came to the church and he said, oh, it looked a lot bigger on the video. <laughs> and I just sort of laughed, this is, this is us, right? Um, but there's a lot more beneath the surface than just numbers, right? Um, I see the Lord doing a work of reformation in this local church. I see people taking sound doctrine seriously, hungry for the word, a people desirous to sing the Psalms, to study 300-year-old confessions, people putting sin to death, confessing their weakness to one another, being vulnerable and real with one another. I see marriages that have become more and more united in Christ, more united to His church, more, more, more uh, focused on the means of grace. I see marriages that are more today pursuing Christ together lockstep. I see families taking the discipleship of their children very serious, making sacrifices for the good of the souls of their own children, seeking to raise them in the fear of the Lord. I see men leading their homes in family worship. I see men catechizing their children. I see men washing their wives with the water of the word. I see men providing for their families for the glory of God. I see wives desiring holiness 
in women desiring holiness, wanting to grow in the word, wanting to learn how to study scripture better. I see wives desiring to obey the Lord and model the gospel in joyful submission to their husbands. I see children excited about church. Praise God for that. Thriving together, memorizing God's truth together, excited to read the Bible publicly. I mean, praise the Lord for that. I see saints killing sin, growing in godliness, hoping in Christ, even in the midst of affliction, zealous to bring the good news to this community, to see it one for Christ. I see Christians sacrificing for one another, loving one another, serving one another. I see the Lord here at FBC building His church, strengthening His church. And it's a joy to serve this body. It's a wonderful privilege to be part of the work that God is doing. Now, it's not all roses, right? It's not all roses. And I, I want to encourage you to not be discouraged. If you hear some of those things, and they're not all true in your context today, if maybe you're hoping for those things to be true in your own family, in your own soul, in your own children, let me say, I'm with you there. All is not perfect in our life, and I know all is not perfect in everyone's life here as well. I myself am daily trying to overcome 30 plus years of living in unbelief and the destruction that my own sin has wrought in my family and my own soul. I am daily praying for unconverted children that have no interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. I daily fail at being a husband and a father, but God, beloved. But God, by grace, through faith, strengthens His church. Amen? Amen. God, by grace, through faith, lifts up weak people to be faithful as He would call us to be faithful. I see this church being built up in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's a wonderful thing to see. And we see that God was doing that in the book of Acts. This is what the Lord does. The church was being strengthened. The church was being built up. And then they were going or walking in. Two different things we see there. They were going in the fear of the Lord and they're going in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You know that Paul likes to call the Christians the way. They're walking along the way. They're walking the narrow path. They're seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what are these Christians doing along the way? How does the church corporate and the Christian individually make progress in the faith? Well, we see that these believers, firstly, they were going along the way, walking in the fear of the Lord or going in the fear of the Lord. The Bible has a lot to say about the fear of the Lord. And it's one of those things that, that is always difficult to articulate plainly. I think it's a doctrine that is confused often for us. Maybe we read it often in the Old Testament and we think that, that the Father, that Yahweh just wanted everyone to be in trembling and, and just this sort of scared submission to His authority. Let me read to you just some of the text about the fear of the Lord, and this is just from Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if you sit in an ivory tower in a university and you have 27 letters behind your name, but you do not fear God, you do not have any knowledge that is worth much. Amen? 
The fear of the Lord also is hatred of evil. To fear God is to hate what he hates. The opposite would be true, is to love what he loves. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So all the wise philosophers in the world, counselors in the world, if their foundation is not the fear of the sovereign God, then their wisdom is rot. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. Do you want your children to have a refuge? Fear the living God. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. The fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. Fear of the Lord is not a slavish fear of the wrath of an awful judge just waiting for his chance to shoot a bolt of lightning across your dome. The fear of the Lord is the respected fear of a loving father. Let me say it like this. The fear of the Lord is to live in the awareness of the presence of the Holy God, to live by the truth of His promises, and to do so with a God-centered focus in all of life. The fear of the Lord is to live in the awareness of the presence of the Holy God. We live Coram Deo, before the face of God. There's no hiding from the Lord. He is always everywhere present. To live by, 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 the, trust of, by the truth of His promises and to do so with a God-centered focus in all areas of life. In every area, to acknowledge the presence of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God in your marriage, in your parenting, in your vocation, the way you deal with your boss, the way that you work in your office when no one's looking and no one's around, the way that you treat your children, the way that you treat your friends and coworkers, the things that you do on the internet, the things that you watch on the television. The places you go, the way you spend your money, the way you order your finances. All of these with a God-centered focus. To live in reverent fear of God. And these saints are living just in that, in a, a new submission to their new Lord Jesus. They're living now in light of His commands. They're walking as He walked. They're putting away the things that do not honor the Lord. It's simple in word. But it's a fight in practice. Amen? It's simple to say, put away the things that do not honor the Lord. And we get that in principle. And we say, amen, yes, all day. Why would I not do that? But then we battle with the flesh. And we must put the flesh to death. They're conforming their lives to the teaching of the apostles and to the scriptures. So how can we walk in the fear of the Lord? Practically for us, I have just two, two thoughts here. To walk in the fear of the Lord. My first thought is this, give God proper worship. Give God proper worship. That is, put Him on a pedestal. Make Him center. And, and we do that firstly in the local church. Attend Sabbath worship. Prepare your heart to come into the presence of of the Holy God. Keep the Lord's Day, beloved. God has given us six days to do all that we want for ourselves, to work, 
to labor, but he's given us one day that would be consecrated to him. And I was just speaking to my brother earlier, I think it was Paul, and I said, this whole Sabbath thing, it's not a Jewish thing. It's in the very fabric of creation. There are not many things that God ordained at creation. Marriage and the Sabbath are two key things that God ordains there in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And he blesses the day. It's not a day for us to be begrudgingly saying, oh, i got to go to church. I so wanted to mow the lawn. No, it's a day to delight in God, to worship him, to set all the stuff aside. I like to look at it like this. The Sabbath is a day where we are free. Because if, if, if we're not seeking to keep the Sabbath, we're going to have this guilt trip of all the stuff that I need to do. And the lawn is two feet tall. The dishes are six feet tall. I got all this stuff I got to do. I'm putting it aside. I should get up and be faithful and fulfill all these tasks. And God says, forget all that and focus on me. So we're freed to disconnect from all of the earthly, worldly, daily stuff that's all going to be there on Monday and to set our heart, to set our mind on him. We try to help you a couple ways, many ways, but two that I thought of, the first is very simple, but it can be helpful, and that is we send out the order of service on Friday. If you're newer here, we use an app called Signal. Very simple to use. Love to add you to the group chat there. It's a place where we exchange information digitally. But I send out the order of service on Friday so that you can see what scripture is the sermon going to be on? What songs are we going to be singing? What prayers and uh, texts are we going to use for the liturgy? So that you can use those in your personal devotions, in your family worship. You can sing the songs with your family. I know it's not a week's in advance, but a couple days. Um, so that you can come knowing what to expect, knowing what to anticipate on the Lord's Day. Another way that we want to help you keep the Sabbath, keep the Lord's Day, honor the Lord's Day, is by offering two meetings on the Lord's Day. Um, the, the, the early church, all the way back to the apostles, they patterned their day on the morning and evening prayers at the temple. And they sort of kept that rhythm going. And all throughout church history, not in every tradition, but we've seen often that churches have worshipped in the morning and the evening on the Lord's Day. Our tendency even when we're wanting to honor the Lord as we go to church, we come home, and we got a lot to do, and we either turn on the TV or we tackle the dishes or tackle the lawn because we need to get things done. But God knows what we need. He knows that we need a day to undo the last six and all of the junk that was funneled into our mind from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so morning and evening worship acts as guardrails for us. To form the day. The day begins with worship and it ends with worship. It shapes the day for us. This is, this is not a law to guilt trip you if you're not with us on Sunday night. But it's an exhortation to say it's very helpful to commit this day to God. To say, all right, Lord, I'm, I'm putting it all aside. The stuff can wait. The burdens, the anxieties, they're going to be there tomorrow anyways, right? However much you think you're going to get done on Sunday afternoon, there's still going to be a pile waiting for you. But... God gives us the day. See it as a gift. He says, if you stop doing your own works on my day, Isaiah 58, 13, I'm paraphrasing, and if you call the Sabbath a delight, then you will delight in the Lord. He says, don't wait till you delight in God and say, okay, I'm ready to keep the Sabbath. No, he says, stop doing your stuff. Delight in the Sabbath, and then you will delight in the Lord. We had a wonderful Lord's Day last week. We, 
people are hanging out afterwards. Somehow we started talking about jalapeno jelly. Sarah happened to have some. She started serving us. It was just a wonderful time of fellowship. The church is together, loving each other, having joyful fellowship. It's a wonderful time. And let me just say this. I hope this is not true for anyone, but if this church isn't for you, that's okay, right? It's not about building this kingdom here. We want to build the kingdom of Christ. But please, please go somewhere that takes God seriously, that takes worship seriously, that takes the word seriously, that takes your personal holiness seriously, that takes the Lord's Day serious. It doesn't end on Sunday, though, right? We give God proper worship in the local church. Secondly, in the home. In the home. Brothers, if you have a wife, you have a family. Whether there's, you had children or not, if you have a wife, you have a family. If God has given you children and they're still in the home, praise God. We have the wonderful privilege of gathering the family every day to sing, to pray, to read the word together, to catechize the little ones. If there's no dad in the home, mom, you have the joyful duty of leading the family in worship. That's that's the mantle that you have to take up. What a wonderful privilege that it is to gather the little church of your home, to shepherd the souls, whether it's husband and wife or mom, dad, and the children, or whatever mixture might be in your house, to pray together, sing together. It doesn't need to be an elaborate sermon Don't be hard-headed like me and take years to realize that two hours is too long for a (laughs) two-year-old. Maybe not two hours, but do what works for the children at the age that they are. That's what what I've had to learn over time. Um, But what a wonderful opportunity to, to exhort your children to trust Christ and believe the gospel. What a wonderful opportunity to to model repentance, to model asking for forgiveness. But it doesn't end there as as well. Give God proper worship in the closet. Um, There's a temptation for us to say, well, hey, I lead family worship in my home every day. Or my dad leads family worship every day. I don't need to read my Bible. I mean, we read the Bible. We sang hymns. We prayed. How much Bible do I need every day? But I encourage you, Christian, whatever age you are, don't neglect your own soul. Don't neglect learning how you on your own can, can seek God and commune with God and know God and, and, and mine His Word for your own soul. Be profit from His Word. Because God has given mom and dad, God has given your husband, He's given your brothers and sisters, but there comes a day when we will all stand before God, naked and alone, and there will be no one else there to advocate for us other than our glorious advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have trusted in Him. So give God proper worship in the church, in the home, and in the closet. And secondly, how do we walk in the fear of the Lord? By taking sin seriously. Putting our sin to death. Killing sin. John Owen famously now said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's no real middle road, right? If we try to ignore it and justify it and rationalize it and just say it's all right, we really don't know that that's a a poison a disease that's sort of rotting our soul from the inside. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's what he says. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
you will live. And so we must, by, as he says, by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, this is not something that we bootstrap on our own, but we must be actively identifying, rooting out, and putting sin to death. Identify it, church. Look in the mirror now and then. Hear yourself speak at times. When, when, when you're reading the Bible or when you're sitting in a sermon, Dad, don't sit there and say, oh, the wife really needs to hear that one. Oh, daughter number two really needs to hear that one. But, but, but remember that God is speaking to our souls as well, right? So identify sin. Look for sin and root it out. Dig deep. Allow the word to sort of mine and do that painful work that it can do and put it to death. And let me say this, and, and I'm preaching to the choir here, church. I'm preaching to myself, but if the Lord uses someone in your life to expose your sinful heart, don't despise them. Give glory to God. Don't focus on how they may or may not have tactfully pointed out your sin, but praise God for His grace to shine that light, to give you a helper that loves you enough to say, hey, you're off here. Repent. Walk new in the Lord Jesus. Children, when mom and dad are on you again about something that's been going on, don't despise them for saying, that's yucky in your heart. That's sin. you got to put it to death. They love you. Love them for that. It hurts. It hurts in the moment. The Bible says that no one loves discipline over our sin, right? There is not a person that says, yeah, I just got corrected. I'm humiliated. I feel like an idiot. This is fantastic. But in time, it bears the fruit of righteousness. It bears fruit over time. It's hard work to have our heart exposed and have to see again. And I thought that died 10 years ago. It's still there. But that's God's grace allowing the light to be shown. So don't despise those that God gives you in your life to point out, hey, you're wrong. It's going to be those usually that know us the most, that love us the most, that see us every day. And secondly, under that heading of taking sin seriously. Secondly, model repentance. Model repentance. Whether it be a coworker, whether it be your big brother, kids that always comes into your room and hacks off the doll's hairs or abuses your toys, punches you, whether it be your spouse, whether it be your child, be quick to repent. I heard a, a sermon I shared with some of the guys this week and I was so struck by something he said. He was talking about family worship. This guy's a dad. And he said, what an opportunity when you're doing family worship and you have wiggly, squiggly toddlers. Anybody been there? Wiggly toddlers that just can't ever seem to have that motor stop. And you lose your cool and get frustrated with them. What an opportunity to model grace and model the gospel by asking forgiveness right there with the family. So model repentance. Be quick to repent. Be slow to take an offense. Be slow to hold a grudge. Be slow to bring up old wrongs. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Offer the grace to others that Jesus offers you every day. Crush your pride and repent to your sister, to your wife, to your mom, and to your dad. Because, beloved, your soul needs it. Those that you love and those that you are around will benefit as well. 
So Christ's church here is being built up. They're walking in the fear of the Lord, and they're walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So we see, thirdly, a dependent church. A dependent church. This, this word here is another sort of complex word that, that one English word doesn't really do it justice. You know the, the word probably paraclete from John chapter 14, 15, and 16 where Jesus says, I'm going to send you the helper or the comforter or the advocate, translated different ways as different Bible translators are trying to really pin down how do I communicate this word in a way that defines it well. And here he speaks of the comfort. They're experiencing the comfort of the Holy Spirit. There's a, there's a word in that Greek word. The root word is a word kaleo. And it means to call or to summon. And so often this word is translated exhortation or encouragement or consolation. And the word means basically the idea is to, to come along one side and aid them, to help them, to encourage them. Uh, to, to call to one side or to come along one's side. And so this church is walking in the aid or the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. They're living in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. They're not walking in their own strength, but they're reliant upon God the Spirit to help them, to, to comfort them, to encourage them, to exhort them. But how is that taking place? How, how should we... Picture this here. Does, does every Christian in the book of Acts have sort of direct special revelation from the Spirit? Is he giving them verbal exhortation throughout the day? I think we ought to see here that primarily they are comforted by the Spirit, exhorted by the Spirit through his Spirit-filled, divinely appointed messengers, the apostles. Again, the church is under the teaching ministry of the apostles and these men are spirit-filled agents of God used by the Lord to deliver the foundational content of the faith. Remember, we talked about that foundation. Jude says that we ought to contend for the faith that has been once for all delivered. That is, there is one faith, one body of doctrine. It's been delivered. It's been delivered once and for all. And, and, and it came through, yes, the preaching ministry of Jesus. That's the beginning. But he continues to speak through the apostles as they speak authoritative words, exhorting the church. And so this comfort of the Holy Spirit is delivered by the apostles. The Spirit is ministering and encouraging and strengthening his church through the preaching and teaching of the apostles, and then subsequently through his indwelling of all believers, as he strengthens them and fills them and spurns them on to walk in the fear of the Lord. And so we see here simply a dependent church. That is a church that's not trusting in the arm of the flesh, not trusting only in their own ingenuity, their own wisdom, their own know-how, their own skills or skill sets. But we see a church that is trusting in the arm of God, reliant upon the power of the Holy Spirit, seeking daily spiritual communion with the Lord through the ordinary means that he has appointed. And I can say that because we saw that in Acts chapter 2.42, that they devoted themselves to these things initially. 
So how can we walk in the encouragement of the Spirit or the comfort of the Spirit? What are some ways that we can walk in the comfort of the Spirit? The first thought I have is this, embrace your weakness. We talked some about this last week as we saw Paul with his thorn in the flesh. Embrace your weakness. Pride is a surefire way to stifle the pursuit of spiritual strength. If I'm proud, think that I'm all that, think that I've got it going on pretty strong, think that I don't really need to be on my knees in the morning, think that I've matured and come a long way and I got this dad thing, this mom thing, this husband thing, brother, sister, whatever it is thing figured out, if I refuse to acknowledge and admit that I have shortcomings, I have weaknesses, I need repentance, I need daily growth, we will not get to a place of dependence. We won't see our need for the Lord if pride is so clouded our eyes to think, I'm, 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 I'm doing okay. But when we truly confess that all I have is Christ, that as Jesus says, without Him I can do nothing, then we teach ourselves to seek and depend upon the Spirit. I might say that whether it's pride or humility, we're discipling our own heart and our own soul. Am I dependent upon my own strength or am I dependent upon the Spirit of God? So embrace your weakness. Weakness is a good thing for the Christian. It's not cool in the world, but it's a good thing for the Christian because it's then that we if I could use this word, channel the Spirit's strength. It's then that we are reminded of the necessity to be on our knees. And we all know this. When we're walking through some very difficult trial, we, we hit our knees and we feel that sense, God, I need you now. I need you today. I can't get throughout the day without prayer, every hour, every moment. There's just this radical neediness of the soul. And then he gets us through that trial and it's easy to sort of forget. No, I'm still that needy. I'm still that dependent. It's just grace that's carrying me, and life is relatively easy for now. So embrace your weakness. Secondly, be filled with the Spirit's Word. Be filled with the Spirit's Word. That is, read, ingest, digest, chew on, and stew on the Word of the Spirit of God. I mean, how is it that we grow... As Christians, we grow as the Spirit works through the Word. The Spirit takes that Word, applies it to the soul, renews our mind, builds up our faith. Our minds, as I said, are renewed by the Spirit working through the Word. Your faith grows and is strengthened by the Spirit working through the Word. Sin and self is decreased by the Spirit working through the Word. So be filled with the Spirit's Word. Have it in your mind. Have it in your heart. Memorize it. Read it. Reflect upon it. Sing it back to God. Pray it back to God. Preach it to your own soul. I was, I've been reading in the book of Numbers recently, and I was, I was appreciating something Moses does. Uh, a lot of us here love that, that text in Exodus when Moses says, Show me your glory. And the Lord, the Lord passes by and says, the Lord, the Lord. And he gives all of these attributes. Well, what does Moses do? Now, the people have rebelled against God. He sends them out into Cana. And the, 
they spy out the land, and ten of the spies, as you know, are terrified. And they say, these people are too much. And, 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 and Joshua and Caleb say, no, these people are bred to us. God is going to deliver us. Let's go. He is with us. And they want to stone the messengers and destroy them. And they say, let's raise up a leader and let's go back to Egypt. And God comes to Moses and he says, I'm done. I'm done with these people. How many signs do they need? How much do I have to do? I've delivered them. I've blessed them. I'm going to destroy them. And Moses, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And do you know what Moses does? He recites the word of God back to the Lord. He reads back what God said about himself. Please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. That's Numbers chapter 14. Starting in verse 13, Moses is filled with the word of God. He remembers what God has said about himself. Now, he's not trying to sort of, to sort of um, coax God into doing something. No, he's simply saying to God, this is who you told us we were. This is what you've promised. And so when we're filled with the word of God, we can recite that word, pray that word back to the Lord. And we can recite that word to our own soul to remind ourselves, no, this is who God is and this is what God has said about my standing with him regardless of what I feel like today. Thirdly, be among the Spirit's people. Be among the Spirit's people. A surefire way to increase spiritual dependence is to be around other weak and needy people. Now, I'm not talking about people that just moan and complain about life all day long. I'm talking about people that have recognized their need of Christ. People that are living in, in dependence upon the Lord every day. People that, like you, are seeking to put their sin to death and to live to Christ. We need those people around us. We need to be among the body of Christ. We saw in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, that, that there's this immediate radical devotion to fellowship, to community. That, that day to day, they went from house to house, breaking bread together, sharing their lives together. Now, practically speaking, we can't be in each other's homes every single day. That's not a reality for the great majority of us. But nonetheless... We need to be among the Spirit's people. We can sit in our home and we can get in our head and we can watch the news and we can get to grumbling, get to our, our faith sort of dwindles a bit. We start getting filled with, with anxiety and fear and frustration and anger and all the rest of it. Then we get around our brother or sister and they point us to Christ. They point us to the cross. They point us to the gospel. They remind us of whose we are. They remind us of who he is. And we're built up. We're filled up again. We're, we're, we're reminded that God is good and that God is for us. And we see this early church being built up by the Lord. The arm of God is upon his church and as they're walking, as they're going about their life, they're walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Spirit, and the Lord adds to their number. 
The Lord multiplies the church. Now we see in this text two types of growth. We see one that is of quality and one that has, is of quantity. On one hand, the church is matured. The church is grown in their faith. They're fortified as believers. Their souls are enriched by Christ. And on the other hand, he adds to their size numerically. Souls are coming into the kingdom and they're coming into the church. They're added to the body. Both of these take work. Both of these take sacrifice. It takes work, if you will, to put sin to death and to walk in the fear of the Lord. Amen? Uh, you've heard me say before that we don't naturally slide into holiness. We don't just wake up one day and say, man, I'm more godly all of a sudden. We wake up and say, man, I'm back in the same sins. I'm back in the same heart attitudes. I'm speaking the same way I used to. I'm, I'm doing the same stuff I used to. It's, it's a fight. It's a battle to walk by the Spirit and put sin to death. It takes work to grow. It also takes work when the church grows. Many a church have prayed for growth, have desired growth, only to when that growth happens, to be frustrated by new people. Why? Because things are different. God forbid somebody sits in your seat, in your pew. Right? People get frustrated. There's new personalities. Things change a bit when new people come. But praise God for the growth, whether it's inward or whether it's outward. All of this growth ultimately is according to the sovereign work of God. Amen. It's according to what He does, according to His good pleasure. Our task, again, as the church, is to remain faithful. And so as I said in the beginning, God builds the church that walks in the fear of His name and trusts in the power of His Spirit. God brought the growth. You see, the things that were sandwiched in between that growth was walking in holiness and trusting the Spirit. That's what the church did. God built them up in the midst of that, and as God was pleased to do, He added to their number. So whether it's by maturity or whether it's by number, that's God's business. But let us remain faithful. Let us keep our hands to the plow and trust the faithful God that He will keep His promise that He will build His church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.